But the story within this Bible is a romance. It's the story of a father looking for a bride for his son. And therefore, like every good romance, it finishes with a wedding. And it finishes with a wedding ceremony where the bride and the groom join happily ever after. Of course, what David Pawson is describing is the exact moment that we see fulfilled at the end of our, cha- our Bibles in Revelation. It's in Revelation where we see the father's son finally presented with his perfect bride, the bride being the resurrected church of Jesus Christ, who alongside Jesus will end up living happily ever after with Jesus. Well, we're not in the book of Revelation this morning, we're actually in the opposite end of the Bible, and uh, we'll be working through our Genesis series and continuing in it. We're in Genesis chapter 24. But as I've been studying today's passage, Pawson's words have just been ringing through my ears, and I couldn't help but see the big picture love story and the romance that's in the Bible set within this humble romance that we see here in the 24th chapter of Genesis. The romantic narratives are strikingly similar. In today's passage, we'll also see a loving father looking to find the perfect bride for his son. And as we look at this story, what I want us to do is look at it through the eyes of three different characters. And first of all, we'll be looking through this, at the story through the eyes of a loving father. We'll see how Abraham acts like a loving father and how Abraham's actions reflect the heart of our loving father. And then in application, we'll learn how that we too can share the heart of our loving Father. Secondly, we'll be looking at this story through the eyes of a faithful servant. We'll see how Abraham's servant acts in total faith towards his master and how our, how our actions, I can't speak, how our actions should reflect the faithful actions of our loving servant, Jesus Christ. And then, we'll be looking at this story through the eyes of a suitable bride. Specifically, we'll see how the willingness of Rebecca and how her generous actions make her a suitable bride for Isaac. We'll then be looking at how our actions, individually and as a church, make us a suitable, loving, willing future bride for Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's first look at this through the eyes of a Of a loving father. And we'll be reading just the first 10 verses here. Now, Abraham was old, very, very well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I might make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I shall give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, so here we enter the story through the eyes 
of Abraham, a loving father, who's just lost his own wife and companion in Sarah. Verse 1 tells us that Abraham is well advanced in years. At this point, he's 140 years old. I'm sure the recent death of his wife Sarah has given Abraham a bit of a wake-up call. He's probably mindful of God's promises that through his son, Isaac, many nations will be born. Understandably, Abraham has clung to these promises, and at the same time, he wants the very best for his son. He wants his son to prosper. He wants his son to continue in the blessings that God has promised to them both. And if Abraham was to look at his son at this present time, he would see a 40-year-old man without a wife and with no prospect of a child. I think Abraham is starting to realize that time is running out. So Abraham calls upon his most trusted servant, and through a series of negotiations, they make an oath. And the oath is clear. Abraham outlines three requirements. The first is that the potential wife will not be a Canaanite woman, and that the potential wife will come from his own kindred in Mesopotamia. And then most importantly, most importantly, that Isaac will not travel with the servant back to Mesopotamia to settle outside of the promised land. In return, the servant inserts a clause. He says, what if the woman refuses to go with me? And Abraham replies and encourages the, the servant in verse 7 by saying, the Lord, the God of heaven, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son there. And so the two men seal the oath with an outward proclamation. The servant places his hand under the thigh of Abraham in an ancient custom that quite literally says that Abraham's goods are in the servant's hands. Not a kind of deal that we'd like to do today, I'm sure. (laughs) The servant is now responsible and equipped to go out and fulfill the task of his master Abraham. So how does this oath and the actions of Abraham here in Genesis 24 reflect the actions of our loving father in the fullness of Scripture? Well, just as Abraham wanted a bride for his son, so God the Father wants to provide a bride for his beloved son. Not that Jesus needs a bride, nor that Jesus needs anything. The bride, as chosen by God the Father, is the Father's gift of love for his son. It's funny, we often recognize the Son as being the Father's gift of love to this world. And we know that so intimately in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. However, we often forget that the church is the Father's gift of love to Jesus. It's the future. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking, really? Yes, really. The church is the Father's gift of love to his son Jesus. And Jesus really desires that gift. Jesus prays to the Father in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants to spend eternity with his bride, the church, because the church is, is Jesus' gift of love from God the Father. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, first of all, we must understand all of this, everything is grounded and rooted and is initiated by the love of God the Father, a love that existed before the foundation of the world because God is love. 
First John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love each other because he loved us first. Like Jesus, we should recognize that God the Father loved us before the very foundation of the world. We love each other because he loved us first. This wonderful verse doesn't stop there. And I'm going to read it to you because I believe it will help us understand this concept of the bride of Christ and why the bride of Christ reflects the heart of God the Father. We're in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, and it says this, We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For we don't love people, if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. I think these verses have a huge implication for the church, and I say church with a capital C, the Church of Christ. In this sermon, if we want to understand who is the church of Christ, knowing that it's the church of Christ that is the gift of love that will be presented to Jesus as his bride, therefore we must understand God's love and desire for his church. And his commandment is clear. Those who love God must love their fellow believers. If somebody says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. The application for us at LBC is clear and simple. We do not have the right as Christians to hate fellow believers. If you're sat here in church and you hate a fellow believer, then unfortunately the text is clear. You do not love God. Similarly, if we as a church are set here within the body of Christ in Lincoln and we hate believers from other churches, then we also do not love God. And if we do not love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see, is what it says in 1 John. Therefore, how can we show the love of God to people who are lost? Warren Wiersbe says this, The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. We're about to see in our passage through the eyes of a faithful servant going out to find a bride for his master. Our job as Christians is to go out into the world to make disciples of Jesus, to baptize them and to teach them all things about Jesus. We cannot make disciples of Jesus if our actions cause hatred and division. We cannot love others if we do not love our fellow believers. If we do not love our fellow believers, then we do not love God. And if we do not love God, then we will not be part of his church. The bride of Christ that will be presented to Jesus Christ when he returns in glory. So let's now focus our attention to that faithful servant in our passage today. And we're reading from verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show me steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the woman to whom you shall say, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Here we look at the story through the eyes of a faithful servant. Now we're not told who the servant is. Some commentators believe it's the servant Eliezer, a man who's been with Abraham from the start and who was Abraham's heir before Abraham had children. But notice how faithful the servant is. His sole purpose is to please his master. And having completed the 500-mile journey with a caravan of camels and a load of gifts, The servant enters the city of Nahor, and his first thought is to pray on behalf of Abraham, his master. He says in verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I mean, what a prayer. The servant has the spiritual wherewithal to ask for God's steadfast love towards his master Abraham. The servant knows it's the love of God the Father that will eventually bring success to Abraham. And just look at how, how the servant prays to God. And he asked, he asked for a very, very clear sign. He says, Let the woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown my steadfast love, shown your steadfast love to my master. Again, those two words, show steadfast love to my master. And then we read in verse 15, before he had even finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, comes out with a water jar on her shoulder. And I love that response to prayer. I love how we're told ahead of time that this is the right woman. Before the servant even realizes, we're told in the text, that Rebecca, who checks all the boxes, just walks straight into the scene. And from this point on, it's like we can enjoy and read the text in expectation and enjoy the interplay between the faithful servant and the willing bride. Before we do that, let's look at how the actions of the faithful servant reflect the actions of our faithful servant, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the ultimate and most faithful servant. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here Paul is explaining how Jesus totally emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And by emptying himself, Jesus was laying, he was laying aside his own attributes of God as God. And he took the form of a human being. And whilst he lived here on earth, he did so as a human being and by living a totally sinless life. Not only that, but Jesus used his human body as a means to serve others. He became a servant. And then incredibly, Jesus took his servant human body to the cross, and he willingly died as a perfect, 
sinless sacrifice for your sins and for mine. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect lamb. His blood covers the sins of the world. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. We've all been bought with the blood of Jesus. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we must glorify God in our bodies, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We take a step back and relate this to the faithful servant in our passage today. What did he do to bring glory to his master? First of all, he believed. The servant traveled over 500 miles with a sack full of gifts, and he believed in the promises of God. Secondly, he believed in the power of prayer. The servant's first thought was to commit the situation to the Lord, the God of his master Abraham. And then first, thirdly, he trusted that God would answer the prayer. The servant asks for a very specific sign, and God, by his grace, answers him before he's even finished speaking. If these are the actions of an Old, old Testament Faithful servant who does not even know the fullness of Scripture, how much more should we, as spirit-filled, God-imbued Christians, act in faithful servant to God? Our example is Jesus Christ. If Jesus came as a servant, therefore we should serve one another. If Jesus came to give his life, therefore we should give our lives in service to him and to others. When we serve God wholly and completely with our bodies, those who are lost will notice. Those in our workplace, those who live either side of us, those who live in the local community, we are God's people and we should be marked as being radically different, radically loving, radically serving. And it's not just about peddling social action programs and tickling the ears of our society. It's about genuinely loving others. Spreading the gospel and winning souls for Jesus Christ. We should be faithful servants, guiding the lost back to our master, and we should be believing, praying, and trusting that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit will be guiding our path and, and leading souls back to Jesus. Let's continue in our, in our text and from verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And he said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, 
We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. In his providence, God brought Rebecca to the well just as the servant finished praying. And she did exactly what the servant had asked for. She drew water for the servant and all ten of his camels. Now, I've done a bit of research on Google, and according to Google, a thirsty camel could drink more than 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. With ten camels, that would be at least 300 gallons of water. For those who work with us in litres, that's 1,363 litres. And Rebecca would have had to draw all that water by hand, and hopefully, actually, the the camels weren't that thirsty. (laughs) Either way, Rebecca's actions showed that she was a kind, pleasant, humble, healthy, and hard worker. The fact that she was also attracted, I'm sure, was just an added bonus. But notice verse 21, it says, The servant gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. As Rebecca drew the water, the servant was studying her every move. Little did Rebecca know that doing this humble task for the servant would possibly make her the bride of Isaac, a wealthy man who's in covenant relationship with God. The same God that she and her family still recognised as descendants in the godly line of Shem. To confirm whether Rebecca was the right woman, in verse 22, the servant asks the all-important question. He asks, please, tell me whose daughter you are. I can imagine he's just seen her, literally, give him water. She, he's, she's fed all his camels, and now he just wants to know that final thing. Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Despite Rebecca's admirable qualities, admirable qualities, the servant really wanted to know one thing. Whose family did Rebecca belong to? Because Abraham's instructions were clear. It was no good presenting Abraham and Isaac with an attractive woman who could could draw loads of water from a well. That's not what was required. The woman must come from the godly line of Shem, the same godly line of Abraham and of Isaac. When Rebecca confirms that she is indeed from the right family, the servant bows his head and he worships the Lord. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and has shown faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The servant rejoices and praises God. This young woman is without a shadow of a doubt the suitable bride for Isaac the gift of love from Abraham, the loving father, to his beloved son. Praise be to God. At the beginning of this sermon, I read the David Pawson quote, didn't I, that the story within the Bible is a romance. It's the story of a father looking for a bride for his son. So I guess the question for us now is, who is the bride of Jesus Christ? And then a follow-up question would be, what makes the bride suitable? 
Now, before we answer those two questions, I must admit that as a man married to my wife, sometimes I do find it, or I did find it, a little strange at times to be married to Jesus. But what I want us to do is to just look at some scripture this morning, and then hopefully all of us, including us blokes, will understand this concept that the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Jesus Christ, okay? And then we'll apply what we've learned. So first of all, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 25 to 27. And here Paul is speaking to Christian husbands within the concept of a Christian marriage. And he says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here, Paul is lifting human married love between a man and a woman to the highest possible level. He's using Christian marriage as an illustration of the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. And what this passage is saying is that it's Jesus who is cleansing his church, and he does it through his word, the Bible. Of course, we all know that the church isn't perfect. It has many spots and many wrinkles, and yet Jesus Christ, through his own desire, is constantly cleansing his church. And the word of God is like his cleansing agent. As the church is nourished by the word, these wrinkles and these spots will with time and a process called sanctification disappear. This happens to us individually and it happens to us corporately as a church. And it's only possible through the spirit of God and by using the word of God. One day, as Revelation tells us, as a church, those who have gone through the sanctification process will be presented in heaven as a glorious bride at the coming of Christ. So having read and explained just that small part of scripture in Ephesians, we can answer our first question, who is the bride of Christ? The bride is the people who God the Father has given to Jesus and who belong to the church and have gone through this sanctification process. And so the second question, which naturally comes from that, is, well, what makes the bride suitable? We saw how Rebecca was the the suitable bride for Isaac. What makes us the suitable bride for Jesus? To answer this, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. And this is the the moment when the bride is finally presented to the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. And it says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At weddings we often hear, Well, what did the bride wear? we're told that the Lamb's Bride is dressed in the righteous deeds of the saints. The NIV translates this with brackets, and it says, Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. It is the righteous acts that we do 
as, as a church that are presented to Jesus upon his return. So to answer the question, what makes us a suitable bride, it's our righteous acts that make us a suitable bride. When Jesus returns, he will see all the unrighteous acts that we have done, and, he, and we will be clothed in them. It says that we will be made bright and pure. But I don't want us to get confused in any kind of way. This isn't a works-based salvation. We do not earn our salvation for our works. Like Rebecca, who drew water for the camels, it wasn't her works that qualified her. She was chosen. No, our salvation comes by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and not through our own efforts or works. However, as we receive Christ, as we become children of God, our righteous actions flow out of us as we journey through, through life with Jesus Christ. So where do we go from here? Well, we keep on journeying through life as Christians with Jesus Christ, walking with Christ, being renewed and being sanctified, being washed and being cleansed through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We should never forget the love story that's contained within our Bibles because at the heart of this love story is the heart of our loving Father. We've just read, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the most important wedding invite you will ever receive. Will we be there? Before I go, I just want to read one more passage, and it's from the last chapter of this wonderful book, the Bible. And it's right at the end in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then two verses down in the last two lines, well, some of the last two lines of the Bible, it says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That LBC is the glorious moment and the ending of the love story that's contained within the pages of our Bibles. I pray that each one of us will be there to experience it. Let's just bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Lord, I thank you that we know ahead of time that through your word and through your promises, which are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that you loved us before the foundation of this world. I thank you for your loving heart towards us as the church, that you see each one of us as a precious child of God. And Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would convict us to repentance should we, be, should we be carrying any kind of hatred towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow believers. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who emptied himself on the cross and took that form of a faithful servant. I pray that you would show us ways to give our lives in service to you this week. Help us Help us to do good works that flow out of us through our sanctification this week. And fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bend us to your will. Clove us that we may be bright and pure when we finally see your face, because we are thirsty and we desire your water of life.
Help us come home. Help us come home so that we can spend eternity with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe Richard and the worship team are now going to come and just lead us in our final song for our service today.